Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Day two of high-level trade negotiations down. Day two coming up. Day one down, rather. Day two coming up. The uh, President of the United States said the talks have gone, quote, very well. Tom Orlick joins us now from Washington, D.C. on Bloomberg Economics, Chief Economist. Tom, translate very well for us, if you can. Well, actually, the the main question I have right now, Jonathan, is where I stand in your friendship rankings. Am I in between Tom and Lisa or am I at the bottom of the pile? We're going to have to work that out, Tom. Maybe not live on radio. Um, So, um, so I think coming into these talks, um, expectations were extremely low. The backstory was uh, the backstory was sanctions on major Chinese surveillance firms. The backstory was the acrimony over the MBA and the free speech controversy. And of course, that Bloomberg scoop about the US pondering barriers to dollar flows, portfolio flows into China. So I was surprised that the Chinese delegation even got on the plane to come over. The fact that they're here suggests that they want a deal. The fact that President Trump is now raising expectations, things saying things are going very well, saying that he's going to meet with Vice Premier Liu He in the White House today suggests he wants a deal. The big things are not on the table. We're not going to get IP protection. We're not going to get market entry. We're certainly not going to get on anything on China's industrial subsidies. Um, but I think expectations are clearly there for some kind of mini package. Tom, do you remember the February round of talks when IP theft wasn't on the table, when subsidies wasn't on the table? It was about a currency pact. It was about buying agricultural products. And Vice Premier Leo Ho was in the Oval Office with the President of the United States. This feels so much like February. And the lesson of the year for many people is that unless you tackle the big issues, you haven't really tackled anything. How are you interpreting that at the moment, Tom? So I think you're completely right, Jonathan. Uh, I think the phrase Groundhog Day has been thrown around quite a lot. um, And that's absolutely right. Um, So um, it seems like both sides are positioning to do something. We'll see what happens. Um, I think the thing which has changed, though, from February, Jonathan, and changed on both sides, is that the economy is heading south. Um, The US isn't creating as many jobs as it was. US Business surveys are are falling. U.S. consumer confidence is disappointing. In China, we think growth is going to drop below the bottom of the government's 6% to 6.5% target range. Um, So the pressure on both sides to do something, certainly to have a standstill on tariffs, certainly to take some of the uncertainty out of the markets, uh, we think has gone up. Um, And that's why and we're not counting on this, but that's why we think the chances of a mini deal are up as well. Well, and that's actually where I wanted to go. How much is the market acting as sort of the key pressure point to look at to decide whether or not President Trump will go through with a deal? So it would certainly be, it's certainly harder to under-deliver after you've raised expectations Um, But I don't think the market is actually the key consideration at this point. Uh, I think clearly President Trump plays close attention to the stock market, um, but he's paid close attention to the stock market throughout his presidency, and that hasn't stopped past trade deals, past trade talks falling through. Um, I think the critical difference this time round is that it's not just market stress, it's economic stress as well. 
Tom Orlick, great to catch up with you. Joining us from Washington, Tom Orlick there heading up our Bloomberg economics team down in D.C. on the U.S. economy. Kathy Fisher joining Lisa and I in the studios here in New York City, Bernstein's head of Wealth Investment Strategies. Kathy, great to see you. Sean Donnan, my uh, colleague down in Washington, D.C., won't tell you where he is on the rankings, but he put this out on Twitter just moments ago. My thought for today, we may get a limited U.S.-China truce deal today, but the economic relationship between the U.S. and China will still be in a worse place than it was just a week ago. Kathy, what do you make of that? (laughs) Well, I, I do agree with everything your, your prior speaker just said, that the, the market is focused on the, ri- the real risk of the increased tariffs in October and December. That will not be good, right? We all know that the U.S. consumer has kept the economy going, and anything that causes a big increase in consumer prices potentially is a bad thing. So the, the, the other side of it, though, is that the big issues are not just trade. The big issues are intellectual property, cybersecurity, human rights, all those things that are um, – really more visible than they were just a few weeks ago. Um, Everybody knows about the NBA now, right? So there's a lot of new things out there that have shown how different uh, the relationship is than people had realized a few months ago. So I kind of see where he may be going with that. Is it too late to get a narrow trade deal that could actually ameliorate the economic concerns at this point in the United States? Not, it, it, it's probably too late. It will help. It will help stymie real problems. But remember, companies have had to rethink their strategies based on the need to rearrange their supply chains, and they're not going back, right? There's inefficiencies that this has caused that will not just disappear because of a minor trade concession. So given that, are markets fairly priced even with a narrow deal? I think when you look at, you know, we talk about where the market is. The market, you know, is near all-time highs, but many stocks have sold off substantially over the past year. As you know, with the U.S., the S&P is flat with where it was a year ago. So there's been quite a lot of uh, cyclical sectors that have sold off a lot based on expectations of a tougher environment for them. Uh, so, so I think there's there's a lot more of a stock picker's opportunity going forward if we have a trade deal than there might have been before. Um, so, but I think there's there's a more realistic view among investors about how much tougher it's going to be. Remember, in '17, we had a synchronous global recovery. Remember those Good happy times. days. Good Remember times, those Kathy. halcyon days, and and that that now is is so far in the past, right? So I think there's a much more realistic view that it is a bit more every country for itself than we've had in quite some time. That's a big change from where people were thinking several years ago. The big debate that happens on this program almost daily is trying to work out this downturn and what underpins it. How much of that is the trade story and how much of it is something else? And with that in mind, once you make a judgment call on that, you can decide whether this short-term rally is just that, a short-term rally off the back of a trade truce and work out whether there's more pain to come down on the road. On those many debates right now, Kathy, where do you come out on them? So, so the, think of it this way: we we see a it's much slower growth economy going forward. I don't think this. I think everyone agrees with that. It's not. It's not just trade. It's demographics, it's productivity, it's all the things we've been talking about for some time, um, which is why interest rates are so low, right? Everybody gets that the global economy is slowing. 
So when you think about the outlook for stocks over the next several years, certainly there will be more modest returns than we've seen with some ups and downs along the way. Um, and that too, I think, is becoming better understood. Kathy, great to catch up with you. Good to see you. Kathy Fisher there, Bernstein Head of Wealth and Investment Strategies. Lara Rehm joining us now, FS Investments Chief U.S. Economist. Lara, do you think that, that the market is right, that the Fed really will take its cues from any developments on trade talks? Uh, you know, we're seeing the Fed look at a wide variety of factors. And I think one of the th- things that we've seen, too, that may be affecting markets is the minutes yesterday, showing that there is such this lively and disparate discussion within the Fed. Are we reacting to the data or are we reacting to the risks? And this has been an ongoing discussion. And today, with the you know talk about a trade deal, and I, I, you know, I think we all need to really remember that we've been here before, thinking that we're going to get a trade deal. It Many hasn't times, happened. Laura. Yeah. So you know, this is important. We shouldn't you know count our chickens before they've hatched. But uh, but when you think about sort of that balance, if the risks are coming down, it just shows how much markets are counting on those risks to push the Fed to cut rates. And to what degree the Federal Reserve is managing markets or managing the economy? That, that's exactly right. And you have a, a vocal, increasingly vocal cohort on that committee that is saying, listen, we don't see, we shouldn't be hitting the panic button yet. The trade is affecting select parts of the economy. Other parts are doing well. So, you know, if we've got only a small amount of ammunition, we can't take practice shots. GDP growth is quite clearly decelerated. Payroll growth is quite clearly decelerated over the last 12 months. Where there is a big debate right now still, Lara, 18 months into the global economic slowdown, what's driving it? What's actually driving this downturn? Because the beginning of the downturn in places like China and Europe predates the tariffs going on in spring of 2018. And the risk, I think, now is to look at the potential of a trade truce and decide this is it. The global economy will bottom out because this was the story weighing on global growth. How do you think about that right now? What's underpinning the global slowdown and how much of that is trade? You know, I, I, so I think a lot of it is trade, although I, I you know, we've, there's no doubt that across the world, structurally, we are challenged in terms of growth. The U.S., 2018, growth rates, you know, around 3% was very, very strong for for where we really should be given, you know, the demographic story, productivity, all that said, um, you know, my outlook continues to be one of relatively sluggish growth, not a recession. And I think, you know, when we look at countries like Europe, we look at Germany, um, you know, there is some gravity that's going to kick in and weigh us down. But I think that domestically, we've actually got a lot of supports for our economy. Slow growth, no downturn, cheap credit. How worried are you about leverage? So that household leverage is looking good. I think one thing that's made clear is that also globally, we have an enormous demand for, um, you know, higher income products for, you know, assets, safer sort of, you know, up the credit chain assets. When Jonathan's talking about the fact that, you know, the drop in growth predated the trade wars, the drop in interest rates predated the trade wars, too. I mean, we are dealing with these structurally low interest rates that are partly being driven by flight to quality. But let's face it, a lot of it is just dealing with the fact that demographically we need these safer assets. There's demand. 
I guess the reason why I ask that is because we have these low rates at a time when the consumer is still strong by getting less strong in the United States. And you're seeing uh, household leverage tick up. So at what point does cutting rates actually create more of a risk than actually uh, leaving them where they are. Yeah. So, you know, the household, I think, is not the area of leverage that we're terribly concerned about. I think we look at corporate debt as being a place, and it's not that we're worried about it yet, but it's certainly a place where leverage looks uh, significantly worse than... Um, than the households. In fact, the savings rate, which you could quibble about that measure, but it's really actually risen during this expansion, which I think gives the consumer some insulation against some of these downside shocks. What's the signal that you take from that, from the jump hard we've seen in the savings rate, Lara? You know, it's funny because I think a lot of economists, when they're just adding up GDP and are looking for growth in this quarter, feel like it's a negative. For me, I actually feel like it's a positive. And there's this double, there's this sort of circular psychology. Can we talk ourselves into recession? Can households get so nervous that they themselves stop spending? But that goes both ways. If they're nervous about recession, they're saving and that gives them the insulation. So, you know, I see a household that's sort of steady as she goes, very, you know, if the jobs really fall and we see initial jobless claims skyrocket, to me, that's a real warning sign that households are going to change Well, behavior. that's the road to recession, isn't it, Lara? Right now, we have if we have a crisis, we have a crisis of confidence on the business side. And if business spending drops, as it has done, does it turn into a drop in hiring, which ultimately starts to hit the household sector? Do you have a baseline call? Do you have a base case around that story? Yeah, that's, a, you know, so I think, you know, we ha- probably haven't seen the bottom of manufacturing sentiment. It'd be great if the ISM bounced at least once to give us to give us a little bit of comfort there. Uh, but we may not have seen the bottom, especially given the slower growth abroad. Uh, business sentiment, we expect to remain uh, sort of relatively sluggish, but still the services sentiment um, to remain in generally in expansive territory. And I think that we're going to continue to see a consumer that is generally driven by um, the infl- the uh, job numbers. My expectation is that we can, you know, see these hundred thousand, eighty to one hundred twenty job gains, and the unemployment unemployment rate really stay where it is. Laura, what would you have to see to change your view and actually grow more pessimistic? I think we would need to see some. You know, again, another uh, the the next round of tariffs actually hit households. Uh, so, you know, some further escalation of the trade um, conflict, and I think it would require some other exogenous shock, maybe something domestic. Um, it's rare that we see. Um, a recession coming when it's not a, a domestic issue. Um, you know, something needs to really hit our economy specifically, not just globally. So, Laura, let's think about that. So we have two deadlines or two dates in mind for trade talks. October 15th, next week, tariffs are set to go from 25 to 30%, I believe, on $250 billion of goods. Then there's this, the December date. In December, all the goods that are left are set to be hit by tariffs by the United States. So as you look at these talks today, how important is it to get next week's tariff hike suspended and the December round suspended as well? That, that's going to be critical. I mean, there's no doubt that the that tariffs hitting the household uh, opens up a whole new uh, avenue of impact on the economy. So that, I think, is the piece that we really, it's incredibly hard to model. We just don't have precedent for it. And causes us genuine concern about the household. Given your outlook and that you do not expect us to be headed toward a downturn, how many times should the Fed cut rates by the end of next year? 
you know, I I am in the camp that feels the Fed needs to be cautious. They need to have the language of, you know, we have the tools, we have the confidence that our tools could work, but to actually be cautious on the rate front. And that's simply because, you know, they have stated that they don't feel like negative interest rate policy is something they're really interested in. And let's be honest, QE, I think they they understand the both the benefits, but also the limitations of that policy. Lara Rain, great to get your thoughts this morning. Have a fantastic day. Lara Rain there, FS Investments Chief US Economist, ahead of day two for trade talks in the United States. Let's check in with our Bloomberg Opinion columnists. Uh, we have Lionel Laurent joining us from London. Uh, Brexit definitely uh, in the front and center with the pound ripping higher this morning. The question is, what actually do we know about what is going on with respect to the tunnel, the private negotiations uh, between the European Union and Boris Johnson? So do what details do we have right now, uh, if any, about these negotiations? So uh, the answer is we, not not a lot. Uh, from from what I've seen recently, there has been a statement from the European side saying that the positions on the European side regarding Ireland, which is the big contentious sticking point, remain the same. So the implication here is that the UK has made some kind of move. There was a meeting between Boris Johnson and his Irish counterpart, Leo Varadkar, yesterday, which was apparently very constructive. So again, the, the subtext is there have been some moves. We can imagine what kind of moves they would be, but it's pure speculation at, at this point. But it seems like the the, uh, the, the implication is that the UK has made uh, some kind of move, big, big move, basically. I guess, how could this have happened so quickly? It was as if they were at war with each other and Boris Johnson was beating his chest and all of a sudden everything is copacetic. What changed? Well, you are right that not, not that much has changed aside from the fact that... Um, Currency markets are clearly more positive ahead of next week's summit, which is a kind of deadline of, of sorts, because obviously up until now, the big fear was that there would be no conclusion, no deal. There, there might still be no conclusion next week or on October 31st. It's just that the worst case scenario suddenly looks a bit better. It looks unlikely that, that things will be so bad that, that, that the UK will just fall out or, or the EU won't, won't extend anything. I would just add in terms of why there might be a move, Boris Johnson is weak politically. He does not have a majority. The talk is cheap. A lot of the chess beating that you're, that you're describing was not backed up by anything aside from a desire to have a, an election, some kind of new vote that would give him the majority he wants. But a lot of this has been talk. A lot of this has been cheap talk. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced there was that much substance there. You write in your latest column, it looks like Johnson will have to do most of the yielding, which is why this won't be easy, despite the excitement of pound traders. Why do you think he'll have to do most of the yielding? Well, the the problem is that this is a very asymmetric negotiation. You have on the one side the EU, which is 27 countries, and they are trying to defend their union, and which is made up of laws and rules, against one member, yes, a very important member with a large economy that's leaving. And this viewpoint difference where you have the UK leaving and saying, a bit like Donald Trump, well, I want to leave with an even better deal than I had going in, is just hitting the buffers of a block that has rules and says, we're not going to tear up the rules 
to accommodate you. And again, as I said earlier, Johnson's domestic situation does not include a political majority, a parliamentary majority, sorry. So it's been clear for the past few months that whatever Johnson does, it's a prelude to some kind of move on his part, whether it's an election campaign where he says, I've been stopped by dark forces and the British people need to vote me in with an even bigger majority, or as seems to be happening, he does some kind of shift backwards to help the EU get more on his side. Why would the EU strike a deal with Boris Johnson, given how politically weak he is? Well, they haven't struck a deal yet. What I think they might want to do is create enough grounds to keep the talks going further into the future. Now, it it all depends on whether there is an election, because what I think we've seen recently is if there is an election, Boris Johnson will blame the EU. This is a blame game that's being set up as much as possible. It could be that the EU is doing this as a way to avoid such a situation to say, well, look, it's it's not our fault if there's no deal. We've done everything we can and we want to keep keep the talks going. The other issue is that as weak as Johnson is, the EU wants Brexit done. So it may have seen some kind of hope, something to cling to that says we can get Brexit done with a deal without there being some massive shift or change in the UK that attacks the EU and sees it as, as being to blame. We were speaking with uh, Stephen Gallo earlier of BMO Capital Markets, and he was saying that the big move in sterling, yes, it is due to some more positive talk around some sort of Brexit deal, but it also has to do with the illiquidity right now in the sterling market. What's your view on that and sort of how easy it is to get in and out and take a position on these talks that have been ongoing for so long? Well, of course, as we were saying earlier, this is this is the sterling market. I mean, it's it's structurally uh, short. It's it's well, un- investors are generally underweight sterling. Brexit is the obvious reason, and with with every bad news flow that Boris Johnson has brought, the pound has been socked lower. A lot of what we're seeing today is a, it can be seen as a squeeze higher. If you look at the if you look at the rate, especially against the euro, it's it's popping up. But if you look zoom out over the past six months or a year, we're we're back to where we were six months ago. And that was not an incredible place. There was no Brexit deal in place, just a general feeling that there wouldn't be a no deal. So you can easily just look at it, look at the levels and say, well, is this euphoria? No. So going forward, let's say we get some sort of deal or at least an agreement to talk about the deal and to push this off a while longer. Do you expect a lot of money to come flooding into the city, uh, in particular property? So I think that it is true that there is a lot of pent-up money, pent-up money again because of this short position on sterling that might come back into the into the UK. But again, we don't know what this deal looks like, and in the long term, the UK is is losing out. London is is losing out. The political instability that we've seen in the UK, which hasn't been seen in a while, makes it lose out. And for all the talk of some kind of Boris Johnson bounce, his fight against Jeremy Corbyn isn't over. And if there is an election, it's clear that British voters are far more volatile than they used to be. So uh, that's that's the extent of my investment optimism, if there is a deal. Lionel Ron, thank you so much for joining me today. Lionel Ron is a Bloomberg opinion columnist joining us from London, talking about the light in the tunnel. They are entering the tunnel, Boris Johnson and the European Union, as they seek a pathway to a deal in secret without leaking all the details along the way, which is giving people confidence. The fewer details, the better. That's what a line of logic saying that at least it does seem like they are having real discussions rather than just posturing for public consumption. 
want to talk a little bit of tech, Lisa. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on, as always. I'm going to start with Tesla. And to do that, we uh, welcome our good friend Gene Munster from Loop Ventures. Gene, thanks so much for joining us. You know, I'm just looking at the uh, the chart of Tesla's stock on the Bloomberg Terminal. You know, it's down 26% year-to-date. And then I was looking at kind of the analysts, you know, the A&R function, and there's 12 buys, 10 holds, 15 sells. You know, putting those two together, it seems like, you know, Wall Street investors just not sure what to do with Tesla here. What are, what are your thoughts? Totally agree, Paul. It's one of the more controversial stories. I've been covering tech for a long time, and it is uh, entertaining to see how split investors are on this story. Essentially, two camps, and uh, they're pretty firm. Uh, one is that this company is overvalued because they uh, potentially could be losing money. And there's going to be a lot of competition coming. And the other camp is that mobility and automotive is going to be transformed in the next 20 years on electrification and autonomy. And Tesla's got a lead. And so uh, you are correct. And the stock uh, trades more on uh, kind of flow, news flow versus fundamentals. I just want to quickly talk about what's going on with the fundamentals is that they gave their production numbers for the September quarter was up 16 percent year over year, which compares the broader auto, which is essentially flat. But more impressive is that in the September quarter a year ago, the company basically harvested a couple years of pent-up demand for Model 3. And so that uh, pent-up demand has now been uh, uh, fulfilled, and there this is new orders coming in. And so I think that uh, effectively, uh, this company will have has its challenges and controversies is making measurable progress towards that future of electrification and autonomy. Gene, one thing I find interesting is we've seen this with the unicorns, investors starting to care about governance. And if they care about governance, Elon Musk is a nightmare. He gives easy expectations that are way higher than he ought to. He says things that he probably shouldn't on Twitter and gets castigated by the SEC and does it again. I mean, how much does governance start to weigh on the share price, even by the biggest bulls out there, uh, when he keeps sort of uh, basically eating his foot? I mean, basically the idea that he, he's, he's sort of working against his share price sometimes. So, uh, you know, we all have uh, flaws and uh, Elon definitely has his flaws. I uh, do not want to uh, overly defend him because I think what you just described is accurate. It weighs on the multiple of Tesla. This company would be worth more. Hard to say how much more if he was more measured. I think it would be considerably higher if he was more measured in his language and um, just how he runs the business. Um, I think that, uh, of course, that Tesla would not be where they are without Elon. And so you kind of have to take, in some ways, the bad with the good. Uh, There is, I think the real core for me around Elon is less about the governance piece and that's going to flare up and uh, be what it is. But I think it's it's more just around the retention piece. And this has been well documented over the last year and a half. The company uh, loses top executives. And the reason is that it is an intense environment and Elon's a difficult person to work with. And so uh, to me, to have sustainability, you have to have retention of talent. And so uh, loosely related to the governance question is Elon and the impact on governance. That's the piece that that, uh, I think more about. So, uh, Gene, we want to take advantage of having you here this morning and talk, broaden it out a little bit. Lisa mentioned kind of some of the unicorns here. And 
we've had a, you know, 2019, we came in with the expectation of some of these unicorns really coming in and making money for shareholders, making money for early investors, making money for investment bankers. Hasn't really worked out that way. And I guess to me, it kind of raises a fundamental question of, is there a, it seems like there's a material disconnect between the valuation coming out of the private market, most notably out of the Valley and in the public markets. I'm going to take advantage of your decades of experience to get your thoughts on that. So we're in a unique place because we continue to write and follow these large tech companies, but our core business is investing in the private market. So we still talk to buy side and we see the private valuations too. And the simple takeaway is there tend to be different types of people that invest in private versus public. And there is a lot of money on the sidelines on the private side as well. And so that disconnect is pretty simple. The best way to describe it is that the private market tends to have longer time horizons and that impacts uh, profitability and uh, basically a, uh, uh, an ability to invest in companies that aren't profitable is higher in the private. And it's been absolutely a wake-up call if you look at what's happened with WeWork and Lyft and Uber. Um, I don't think it's uh, a surprise there, but what I think the substance of what is going to happen is that there is going to be less companies uh, I think coming out, uh, the, these companies that are losing lots of money, because essentially they'd be down rounds. I mean, we're talking about um, a, a negative outcome for investors. And I think some of these later rounds uh, that traditionally were just uh, oversubscribed on the private side, I think uh, that will come in too. Overall, I think it's a, a, a healthy exercise for the marketplace just to have some consistent seeing a little bit more alignment in terms of how private investors and public investors think. Just shifting gears a little bit from the unicorns to the behemoths, Apple shares have been on a tear recently, not just because of trade tension seizing, but also because of word that their latest iPhone demand is actually quite significant and perhaps more than people had expected. Shares up now nearly 50% year to date. How much more is there to go with respect to the rally here? Lisa, I think this is one of the more misunderstood stories. Uh, hard to believe because Apple is uh, hyper-covered, but misunderstood opportunities. And I think uh, there's 50% upside in the Apple story over the next couple of years. And the consensus view today is that 85% uh, of Apple is a hit-driven hardware business, 15% services. But I think that's going to evolve to being this consumer tech staples company. And uh, ultimately, it's the only company that can bring together seamlessly different types of hardware, whether it's watch, phone, AirPods, your computer, with services on top of it, which is uh, consumer, in my view, consumer staples. And if you look at the multiples on consumer staple companies, Procter & Gamble, for example, Coca-Cola, both of those are trading in the mid-20s uh, multiples, which is about a 50% higher multiple on next year's numbers. And those two companies, Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola, uh, Procter & Gamble is fractional growth. Coca-Cola has been declining in growth. And so I think that you will see over the next couple of years a slow shift to this uh, less anxiety about what the iPhone revenue is going to be quarter to quarter in more of a holistic view. Today, we're going to publish some uh, work on our wearables, uh, their wearables segment. It's 7% of revenue. So I think that that ultimately is going to drive the stock higher. Gene Munster, thank you so much for being with us. Gene Munster, Loop Ventures co-founder, uh, all things tech, uh, talking about Tesla as well as Apple and the unicorns, private valuations uh, coming in quite high. Question of whether they will be tested or whether they will simply stay out of public markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. 
Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.